Welcome to the Later in Life Planning Show with Patrick Colley, brought to you by Keystone Elder Law, right here on News Radio WHP 580. Now, here's your host, Patrick Colley. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. I'm your host, Patrick Cauley. I'm the owner of Keystone Elder Law, which serves people all over South Central Pennsylvania as the shield that protects the middle class from the costs and challenges of getting older. We do that by anticipating specific and predictable threats, and we address those threats primarily through using estate planning tools. The estate planning tools are going to include the power of attorney, the will, certain kinds of trusts. We might use Medicaid law in the event of long-term care expenses. The Later in Life Planning Show is just one part of Keystone Elder Law's emphasis on educating people first before they make major decisions to secure a better future for their family. If you hear something and you have questions, if you'd like to learn more, We do offer weekly online workshops where we go through information that middle-class families need to plan for the later years of life. I answer questions during these workshops. I give some ways to take action right away so people can close down their laptop or their uh, iPad and, and, and immediately make progress. If you're interested in those workshops, uh, like I said, they're, they're pretty much weekly. Uh, you go to keystoneelderlaw.com. And there's a workshops tab. Just click on that. You'll be able to get registered. One of them is called uh, Middle Class Estate Planning and Asset Protection. There's another one that I sort of alternate weeks with, and it's called How to Pay for Long-Term Care. So the workshops are a good way to go even deeper than I can possibly go on the Later in Life Planning Show. A lot of what we talk about in the workshops and on this show has to do with legal planning to protect your hard-earned money from specific threats, but really a comprehensive plan for the later years of life is not limited to your legal planning. Now, don't get me wrong, everyone over the age of 18 needs certain legal tools in place, but there's so much more planning for your future that can be done. And the plan must adapt as changes happen in your health, the members of your family, with births, with divorces, with marriages, uh, with deaths. Uh, Your plan must adapt. Uh, If there are changes in your finances, your plan must adapt. But what I want is for you to have a shield that protects you from the costs of getting older. That's, That's how I sort of introduce myself. That's how I describe our mission at Keystone Elder Law. And those costs of getting older can be financial, but they can also be emotional. And if you're wondering why you need to shield yourself from anything, well, that's the starting point of your later in life planning. Be very clear on what you need to shield yourself against, because I guarantee you there are things you need to shield yourself against. I see them all the time at Keystone Elder Law. When people aren't doing the, the proactive planning that I love to do, when, when everyone's healthy, everyone's calm, you know, we're, we're also seeing people who are going through a decline in health. Someone has a stroke, someone has dementia and can no longer uh, be safe in the home and we need to make other arrangements and we have to use legal tools to pay for it because it's extremely expensive. You know, just and sometimes we're settling estates, and it, it sure seems like there's some avoidable mistakes uh, that the, the the family could have done some planning to make it go more smoothly. 
in short, there are things you you can prepare for that you can uh, shield yourself against to save your family a lot of money, but also a lot of emotional turmoil. I'll tell you, one of the first things I do when I meet with people is, you know, I I come into the meeting having already looked over a lot of information that we gather from them. I'm checking out property values, but I want to talk to them and I want to know, tell me about your family dynamics. How, How do people get along with each other? How's everybody's health? Is there any reason why you you would feel uncomfortable leaving a lump sum of money to somebody, whether it be money management problems, a divorce, addiction, anything like that? Uh, you know, these are all things that are challenges waiting to happen, and you can plan around them. You can build a shield. But one goal that I hear very often, and, and I'll tell you, a lot of people just sort of they haven't given it anywhere near as much thought as I have, uh, but after hearing this episode of the show, maybe you'll start to think about these these goals that people might have. But a lot of people just say, look, I want to make life easier for my kids. That's a pretty good example of what I hear as a goal. They, they come in at point A and point B is life is easier for their kids. Well, how can that goal be made more specific so that they can take action in a definite way? In my mind, as I look through everything that, you know, who's in the family, what health concerns, uh, I, you know, what, what do they own, I'm thinking if I, if I had the same family members, the same health issues or special needs, the same financial accounts, the same insurance, the same real estate, what would my concerns be? But ultimately, you know, I'm the attorney in the room. It's not my concerns that matter. It is my job, however, to bring those concerns to light for people so they can judge for themselves whether they need a plan to address those concerns. Do they need to build a shield? But if if you're completely you know, in the dark wondering, well, what am I shielding myself against? Here's what you do. Ask what if. Ask it over and over. What if. Really think about things that could happen in the future of your family. Maybe think of some of your friends or your neighbors. Think about the things that have happened in their families. What if that happens to you? And the answer to the question may not come in the form of your legal planning, but you may have to, to be clear on the question before and the situation before you know what the answer is. Maybe you've seen some people... Uh, whose kids aren't talking to each other anymore. You know, parents passed away. Now the kids aren't speaking because they're fighting over uh, who gets what furniture in the house. Or, you know, mom told me I was going to get this and, and, you know, I thought I was supposed to get it. Well, that's legacy planning. Do you, you know, there's a way to plan for that. And it's not necessarily a legal document. It's communication. It's writing things down. We, We at Keystone Elder Law provide sort of a private tool for you to use where you can record personal belongings going to particular people. But really, communication is the way that you address that challenge before it comes up. Here's another example. A husband and wife split up their household tasks. The husband mows the lawn. The, the wife does most of the cooking. They both do the dishes. But the husband also manages the couple's finances He keeps an eye on the investments and the retirement accounts. He makes sure the taxes are done each year. What if the husband has a stroke or dementia or a fatal heart attack? Will the wife even know where to find the financial records? 
Will she know the husband's passwords? Will the wife know what bills need to be paid and when? So, sure, your legal planning will help here because a good power of attorney will give that wife legal authority to access and control the husband's financial accounts, to to even access uh, anything online that has a password. You know, if the husband is in is alive but incapacitated, the power of attorney is a a, a great plan, legal planning tool. It'll allow the wife to to sign documents for the husband, including maybe the deed to the house if they need to move to a care community. That's incredibly helpful. But the legal planning only gives the authority. It doesn't organize and explain the husband's financial work. The answer to what if here might be that if the that the husband should just sit down and write out in plain English what to do about finances if he becomes incapacitated or dies. Think about what an incredible gift that would be to his wife and ultimately to any children they have. You know, his the, the answer here might be even going a step further. Establish a relationship with a good financial advisor. That way it doesn't matter if somebody loses capacity or passes away. That, that independent professional always has a running list of where everything stands financially, and anybody else can step up, especially with a good legal power of attorney, and make sure that bills get paid, make sure that financial obligations are met. People in the second half of life think about how long their health will hold up. What if, what if I have an accident, or a stroke, or dementia, or any other condition that would affect my ability to make sense of bank statements and insurance policies or other decisions in my daily life it's important to ask that question and that's important that's that's really why you need to do the legal planning for a financial power of attorney that's powerful legal planning it's having an incapacity plan and i'll tell you it seems like maybe in past generations maybe this is why people come to me and they say well all i need is an updated will my will is 40 years old. Uh, I need to update the will. You know, there was a time when estate planning was just, you know, I'm going to drop dead. Who gets my stuff? But incapacity planning is so much more important now. And if you don't get that right, there might not be any stuff to go through your will. Again, we do workshops at Keystone Elder Law weekly to go into the details of all of this. Go to KeystoneElderLaw.com and check out the workshops tab. You can get registered for an upcoming workshop. More on asking what if and having a comprehensive plan in a moment. You're listening to the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio WHP 580. Now, more of the Later in Life Planning Show here on News Radio WHP 580. We are back on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. I'm your host, Patrick Cauley. Today, I'm talking about comprehensive planning, whether that includes legal planning, and it should, or whether we're talking about just simple communication, whether it talks about uh, whether we're talking about uh, financial planning. There's a number of ways you can plan in a comprehensive way to head off problems and challenges that are very statistically likely to happen to your family, to you, to to your children. And so before the break, I was talking about like, what if, what if I get, uh, you know, a stroke? What if I get uh, a, a heart attack? What, what if I'm incapacitated? 
Who's going to make decisions for me? Well, it's not just financial decisions, although I do see a lot of people who get themselves in a situation where, uh, you know, we want to sell the house and move into an assisted living community, but we can't because we never did any legal planning. And now my spouse uh, has has uh, dementia and and can't sign a deed. You know, there's can't sign any valid legal document. And so, you know, they, they did get themselves into a pickle from a financial or property perspective just by not doing any planning. But, you know, the other what ifs are what if I, I get, you know, I have dementia or, or a bad accident and I can't make my medical decisions? What if that happens? How, how are my medical decisions going to be made and who, who is going to make those decisions? And then what are they going to do to me? Am I going to... You know, are they going to keep me in a hospital bed? Am I going to be, a, you know, in a vegetative state? Well, that's where your health care power of attorney and living will come in. That's legal planning, but that's not the end of the line because what you're doing there is, is number one, of course, you're, you're identifying the people who you trust, the people who have the emotional wherewithal to speak to a doctor when you're in a hospital bed and, and make a courageous decision um, and and make your medical decisions because we all have the legal right to say what happens to us from a from the standpoint of medical treatment. But if you lose the ability to speak for yourself, you're giving that right to somebody else to exercise. So the second half of it, the living will, is where you say, "Hey, when I was calm, when I was uh, healthy, I thought this through, and I thought about my." parents, I thought about my aunts, uncles, friends, neighbors, and what I've seen in my life and what they've gone through with medical care at the end of life. And here's what I've come up with. This is what I want. And if I get to a certain point where the doctors think it it probably uh, doesn't matter if they keep treating, well, I'm going to make some quality of life decisions. I'm going to talk to you, you know, in that document, I'm going to tell people, you know, do I want to be uh, receiving food and water through a tube because I, I'm, I'm out of it, I, I can't even swallow, and you're going to be keeping me alive by, by pumping these fluids into me. Do I want that? Do I not want that? If, I have a, uh, if my heart stops, do I want you after a certain point to resuscitate me or do I want you to let me go? You know, these are the important decisions. So you're addressing all kinds of what-ifs there where you're thinking about quality of life. You're thinking about the kind of of uh, things that you you know if you could if you could speak to your future self now you know you're you're basically sending that message out there. This is how I want to be treated so that my dignity is upheld, so that my uh, wishes for pain management and so forth are are honored. But I'll tell you, people just so commonly come into me and they just say, I need to update my will. And I'm not sure how that got stuck in, in people's head as the driving force of estate planning. Maybe it was drafted when the kids were little and now the kids are grown and they have kids of their own. And okay, a will is a fundamental part of an estate plan and you probably need a will. But know what it does for you. Your will is your admission ticket to a process in court called probate. It's a set of court rules, and it's step by step by step. You start by presenting the original will to the court. They open an estate. That goes. Uh, then you have to publish and, and notify the world that this estate exists because then creditors have to be paid off. You have to pay taxes. And then everything that's left, then you distribute it to all the people 
uh, that the will says will receive that property, and then you close the estate. That's a very simplified version of it, but it is a step-by-step process. All the time you hear, you hear if you, well, if you Google, do I need a will, do I need a trust, you're going to see all kinds of articles about avoiding probate. That's the process I just described. In some states, probate is far, far worse than it is in Pennsylvania, but you know where it, it's just more costly, it takes a very long time to settle in a state. But I'll tell you, even in Pennsylvania, if you can avoid it, you know, you're going to have a bank account that's tied up for maybe a year or longer uh, while we're paying off creditors and taxes and all of that. You can't distribute the money until the process is over. So you're going to have a bank account that's frozen. And maybe you want to set up your finances in a way and your and the way you own property just to avoid having everything frozen and held up during the probate process. It's quicker. You don't have to pay a lawyer or court costs. If I can if I can look at everything you have and in the first five minutes of a meeting with you at Keystone Elder Law tell you ways to avoid probate, you better believe I'm going to do that. And one way is by jointly owning property. So husband and wife own a bank account together. They're joint owners. One of them passes away. I don't have to do anything with the will just to get the money in that account to the other spouse. It just automatically becomes the the surviving spouse's property. Same with real estate, uh, joint ownership. Now, people think that they should be adding their children as joint owners, and there's a lot of risks that go with that. Uh, their creditors, now you're inviting them to the party. Um, you know, you're, you're losing some control in the event of real estate or stocks. You might be uh, giving your children capital gains tax worries that, that, that is avoidable. But even on the, let's go back to the bank account, the second spouse passes away. Now you're thinking, well, now I need to use the will because, you know, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the property of somebody. They passed away with that in their name. Well, you know, you can have beneficiary designations on all kinds of things, and that avoids probate. So uh, think about your, in- your life insurance or your uh, retirement account. Well, there's something similar for, for some bank accounts, uh, often credit unions don't do this, but but banks do, where you can have a POD, payable on death, or a TOD, transfer on death, designation on your account, then it doesn't go through probate. That money is just immediately available to, let's say, your children or whoever you're leaving money to. Now, don't get me wrong. That's only one piece of the puzzle is avoiding probate. Uh, and that's, you know, that's that general goal. Make life easier for my kids. Just that's all I want to do. Okay, well, that's one quick step where you don't even need a lawyer to do that. Um, you know, it helps to have somebody who looks at these things all day, every day to guide you and, and point these things out. And that's what I do at Keystone Elder Law. But uh, if I point that out, I still haven't solved another problem for you, which is protecting your assets from long-term care costs, from from other threats that might come your way, but you're, you're still solving one pro- one problem. That's one challenge that your family won't have to do to, to deal with. So think about you know a woman with with no spouse and she has two kids. She has bank accounts. She has a retirement account. She has life insurance, and she has a house. You can avoid probate on all of that. The bank accounts with a POD or TOD designation a beneficiary designation on the retirement account and the life insurance. It's just the house. The only way to avoid probate there would either be to deed all or some of it over to the children, and I don't recommend doing that, or using a trust. I do trusts all the time 
for middle-class families because you will dramatically reduce the cost of settling your estate. And that's that's not even why I, I do it. That's not even the primary reason. But number one, I'll go back to why wouldn't you just, you know, if, if, if long-term care costs, for example, are your concern, that's the cost you're trying to shield yourself against. Why not just deed the house over? Why would that that single woman with with two kids not not just deed her house over to the kids? Well, if you do that, and let's say she bought the house in 1990 for a hundred thousand dollars, and it's now worth three hundred and fifty thousand dollars, well, the children are going to get that house if it's gifted during life. She deeds it over for a dollar, something like that. Well, they now have a cost basis of $100,000, that 1990 amount. And when they sell it, now there's going to be profit from the 1990 value to whenever they sell the property. And that's going to result in a lot of capital gains tax for them. Whereas if they get it through the will or through a trust, then that 1990 value steps up to whatever the property is worth on the day that mom dies so they can sell it and in the eyes of the IRS there is no profit and therefore there is no taxes so putting having the house go through a will or through a trust is the way to do it you're not avoiding probate if you have it go through a will you do avoid probate if it goes through a trust and you get that step up in basis to avoid capital gains tax so there's a lot of moving parts already. So when you come in and just make life easier for my kids, you can see where my head is going, but is your head going there? These are the things that that I want people to start thinking about, all of the various challenges that could come their way so they can build a shield against it. More in a moment. You are listening to the Later in Life Planning Show sponsored by Keystone Elder Law on News Radio WHP 580. Welcome back to the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio WHP 580. Here's Patrick Colley. We're back on the Later in Life Planning Show sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. I am your host, Patrick Colley. Today I'm talking about comprehensive planning. I'm talking about building a shield to protect yourself from the costs and the challenges that come with getting older. And for those who don't even know what they would be shielding themselves Against, that's where I'm going into a repeated series of asking the question, what if? So just as another example of what if and and how are things going to play out in a particular set of circumstances, think about a couple. The couple owns a primary residence and they also have a beach house. They come into my office at Keystone Elder Law and they say, I want to make things easier for my kids, A, a general, somewhat vague goal and I start playing out the situation for them. If if one spouse passes away, um, no problem if they jointly own both of those properties, their primary residence and the beach house. But when the second spouse passes away, and this is really where you want to make life easier for the kids, there's going to be those probate proceedings, the, the court steps, the step-by-step-by-step, the step step, all of these things that have to be done in two different states. Because you own, you know, and, you know, if you have a primary residence in Pennsylvania and you have a beach house, I'm assuming that's not in Pennsylvania. So you're going to have to go through probate in two states. That's going to be very costly. Your your children are going to have to hire probably help in both states to get through the process. 
it's going to be not as easy as it could have been. So how you arrange your property can make things go smoothly and legal tools can add extra value. In this case, property in two states, uh, I'm probably going to be talking to you about using a trust and the trust will avoid probate in both states. A trust is a private agreement. It dramatically speeds up uh, the the settling of the estate and and uh, dramatically reduces the cost because there's not as much to do uh, depending on the type of trust that you choose. And as I said before the break, that's not even the primary reason why I draft trusts for middle-class families all the time. The main reason why I do it is because middle-class families, pretty much by definition, will get wiped out by long-term care costs. It's the it's one of the largest, most expensive threats in the future for middle-class families. And why do I say that? Well, according to the Alzheimer's Association, one out of every three people, one out of three, will develop dementia in their lifetime. And there's something to, you know, there's a trend to back that up. In the first two decades of this century, the, the the rates of deaths from Alzheimer's went up by 145%. Just to put that in context, in the same time frame, those first two decades, the, the rate of deaths from heart disease actually went down by 7.3%. So compare that to an increase of 145%. If you're not asking what if, when it comes to dementia in your future, you are leaving yourself vulnerable you have not built a shield to protect your family from some very serious financial costs and then some emotional costs that go along with it. So when we talk about long-term care, you know, a lot of people think, well, I have Medicare or I'm going to sign up for Medicare when I hit 65. What's the problem? I thought that was the whole point. Medicare is going to be your insurance for acute care costs. That's how you will go to the doctor. If you have to go to the hospital, if you have to go in for a surgical procedure, depending on your Medicare plan, maybe some uh, prescription medications, but it's not going to pay for your long-term care. And I just told you one out of every three people are going to have dementia, which on a long enough timeline leads to a, a, a definite higher level of care. And that's before we even get into the people who don't have dementia, but they have a bad fall, they have a car accident. They, they have some sort of traumatic brain injury. They have Parkinson's, MS, ALS. They, you know, they have a stroke. These are all reasons why people have long-term care, and nearly 70% of the population will need a higher level of care for the long term. And Medicare is not will likely pay for a lot of the acute care your spouse will need. The surgery, the chemo, the radiation, the doctor follow-up appointments— But if the what if is, what if my spouse has a stroke or dementia or any of those other conditions I just rattled off, Medicare will not pay much at all. And there's really three levels of care. There's care provided in your home, and that might be friends and family. It might be supplemented with a professional home care agency. Um, There's the next level up where it's just not safe or, or adequate care can't be provided in the home that now you're talking about an assisted living facility or a personal care community. And then there's the highest level of care where the most intense level of care is, is provided. It, it somewhat feels like a hospital setting. That's a skilled nursing facility. If I say the word nursing home, that's what I'm talking about. 
the level of care determines the cost because you know it might be between five and eight thousand dollars maybe a little bit higher at assisted living or personal care it's about thirteen thousand dollars a month to be in skilled care remember what i said medicare is not paying for this so how do you pay for it and and i'll get back to how you can arrange things now maybe using a trust and how that's going to play some value or play a role in, in in your preparation but how are you going to pay at each of those levels? Well, you have some choices. You can get out your checkbook and you can write a check for 13000 a month. Uh, you know, how much is going to be left for your kids one day? Probably not much at all, if anything. Or what if you have a spouse at home who's healthier? What's the spouse going to live on if you're writing those kinds of checks? You might have long-term care insurance. I find that a lot of people don't. Um, And so planning ahead might involve working with a financial advisor to grow your money so that you have choices when it comes to to a decline in health. It might involve speaking with an insurance broker about long-term care insurance or more commonly these days, some sort of hybrid life insurance policy that has a long-term care rider, meaning it's life insurance. So if you pass away, a death benefit will pay to your family. That's great. But if you need long-term care, you can advance the money in the policy to pay for your care. That's also great. So it's sort of a win-win if you can get through their underwriting based on your age, your health history, and so forth. So so that's planning you can be doing. Um, but ultimately, you kind of have to figure that you're, you're planning for Medicaid because you don't know whether you're going to be one of those cancer patients or whether you're going to be a dementia patient or whether you're going to be a you know heart disease patient where Medicare will pick up a lot of the tab or whether you're going to be a stroke patient where Medicaid is your solution for long-term care. So a lot of legal planning you can be doing involves getting ready for Medicaid and that's where we're going to go into some detail. Uh, this planning ahead for Medicaid and then making everything easy, setting the table for Medicaid causes so much savings in money for your family, but it also makes what would, what is otherwise a challenging time with, with a stroke or dementia. This is, this is difficult for your loved ones, but you can make it easier by having all the planning in place so that when it happens, um, you, you have a seamless plan. So there's certainly legal planning you can do. Without a few million dollars in the bank, Planning around the Medicaid rules really is essential for middle-class families. And I'll tell you, this is why the middle class needs asset protection and legal planning more than anyone else. Let me say that again. The middle class needs asset protection and good estate planning more than anyone else. Because those who are less fortunate, the people who really have nothing, well, their care in, in the later years of life will be paid for without question. They will be automatically eligible for Medicaid because they have nothing, and Medicaid, of course, looks at how much money you have. Those who have many, many, many millions of dollars, well, they have the same likelihood of needing long-term care, the same likelihood of a stroke or dementia, but they can privately pay for their care without making a dent in their savings. But the middle class, the middle class will be wiped out by, by long-term care expenses. If you're paying $8,000 a month for assisted living month after month after month, if you're paying $13,000 month after month for skilled care, how long is that going to work for your family? Ask that what if. 
what if someone in your family needs skilled care that costs $13,000 a month? What if? What if? What do you do then? What's your plan? What, how, what legal planning have you done? What financial planning have you done to be ready for that? So after the break, I'm going to go into the answer to the what if that is most likely to apply to your circumstances because it is even if you have private pay, some private pay resources for long-term care, even if you have long-term care insurance, I'm guessing it's not going to cover $13,000 a month or at least not for very long. So Medicaid still comes in as a payment method, and it's sometimes a mix of payment methods, but Medicaid is always there as the safety net. More on the details of Medicaid for long-term care planning in a second. Uh, We're going to go to a break, and I'll, I'll go into that more when I come back. This is the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law, on News Radio WHP 580. It's the Later in Life Planning Show here on News Radio WHP 580. Now, your host, Patrick Colley. We're back on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. I'm your host, Patrick Colley. I'm asking what if today? We're talking about comprehensive planning for the years ahead, for the second half of life, the later years of life. A lot can go wrong, and people worry about how long is their health going to hold up? Are they going to outlive their money? Are they going to leave something to their kids? You know, are they going to need an extra level of support and care? And I've gone through a number of of ways people might think about that so that they can bring to light solutions for themselves. Sometimes the legal planning is the solution. Other times there's financial planning. There's all kinds of practical planning you can do by keeping lists of passwords and lists of accounts. All of this is part of your comprehensive plan. But before the break, I promised that I'd give a little more information on what happens if someone, your your parent, your spouse, uh, yourself, what if long-term care comes up and and all of the crushing expenses of long-term care because Medicare does not pay for it, so your options are private pay, long-term care insurance, which you probably don't currently have uh, and may not be able to get. Um, you probably don't qualify for veterans benefits and, and that wouldn't pay for the whole cost anyway. So you're left with Medicaid and how does that work? So consider Jack and Jill, a married couple. They have a couple of children. They have both jointly owned and separately owned bank accounts. Jack and Jill each have an IRA, a retirement account. Uh, let's say there's about $400,000 in each of their IRAs. Uh, Each has a whole life insurance policy. Why is that significant? Because it's an investment vehicle, but, you know, there's money in it and it has a death benefit. It will pay out a certain amount to your family when you're gone, but there's also a surrender value that's far less than the death benefit. So if you can can surrender it, then uh, this is going to be important because Medicaid says you have to take that smaller amount, goodbye, to the, the, the higher death benefit for your family. And Jack and Jill have both a primary residence and a vacation property. So if they're asking what if, I, I'll just jump right to the end and I'll tell you how this plays out. Let's say it's, uh, let's say it's Jack because, let's face it, men fare poorly compared to women in the later years of life. So let's say it's Jack. Uh, he has dementia. He needs long-term care. It, it gets to the point where he the care can't be provided in the home anymore. 
Maybe he has some physical mobility problems as well. So he's looking at skilled nursing care. So Jill's thinking, well, I I don't want to burn through $13,000 a month uh, as much as I want to care for Jack, as much as I promised him I would always care for him. Um, I think that the most responsible thing I can do and the way I can be the best wife to him is to have professionals provide the care. I'll show up to provide the support. Um, so he's looking at skilled nursing care. Jill is concerned about 13000 a month. So what they're going to do is they're going to look at, uh, at income. They're going to look at assets, everything you've saved, your resources, and they're going to look at gifting. Those are the three elements of Medicaid eligibility, your income. Everything you own and and have have saved your your property and finally your gifting, and we're not just concerned about getting eligible for Medicaid because what happens when someone on Medicaid passes away? This is another stark difference between Medicare paying for care in the later years of life and Medicaid paying for it, and you don't know most likely which camp you're going to be in, but. Uh, because you don't know if you're going to have acute care needs or if you're going to have long-term care needs. It depends on how your health just turns out for you. But at the end of life for a Medicaid recipient, maybe you know it's about $154,000 a year in skilled care. If Medicaid is picking up the tab, they come after the estate of the Medicaid recipient looking to get paid back. So that's part of what we're factoring in when we get people eligible for Medicaid. So income, your assets, your gifting, and then we're worried about that estate recovery. So, you know, income is pretty easy. Jack's income, whatever it is, Social Security, pension, that goes straight to the nursing home and Jill keeps whatever income she has. Okay, easy enough. We move on to the second category, assets. If they both have an IRA with $400,000, Jill keeps hers safe. That's off the table. But Jax has to be liquidated, so right there we have $400,000 in assets. They have joint and separate bank accounts. All of that is is under the microscope for Medicaid. There's no saving that. Um, and they have whole life insurance, so uh, they have to sur- take the surrender value, so now they don't have life insurance. They have to take that smaller amount, put it in the bucket of countable assets. They have a primary residence which they're allowed to have. That, that along with Jill's IRA, stays out of consideration. And then finally, uh-oh, they have a vacation property. The vacation property, let's assume it's worth, I don't know, three dollars $400,000. They're not allowed to have that and get Medicaid. They're, Medicaid will overlook the primary residence for purposes of eligibility, but they will not overlook the vacation property. It has to be sold the money has to go into the bucket, and then we have to go forward with what's called the Medicaid spend down, where we, as an end goal, want to save 100% of the assets and get them all into Jill's name. That's a very simple version of what we do, but that's that's what we're shooting for. But we have to go through a number of steps where we, we basically make Jack broke, but we keep all the money in Jill's name. Um, so... What's the problem here? They have a, a, a vacation property. So what now coming back to present day, if that's the future for Jack and Jill, if they're asking what if, what if Jack eventually gets uh, dementia and needs long-term care and they're still healthy and they're asking that what if, well, what would they want to have in place? Well, they should have the three fundamentals of legal planning. They should have a financial power of attorney. So even if Jack loses the ability to make sense of 
bank statements and insurance policies and all the rest or sign deeds. Jill can do it for him if he has a good power of attorney naming Jill as the person to do that for him in the event of incapacity. They should have a health care power of attorney so that Jack's medical decisions are going to be made by Jill or whoever he chooses after Jill, and he can indicate his wishes for quality of life. They should probably have a will um, and have an asset protection trust because if we get all the money into Jill's name and Jill suddenly passes away, I don't want Jill leaving all the money back to Jack. He's on Medicaid. Uh, he's not allowed to have any money. And if, if Medicaid goes away, they're going to spend all of their money on long-term care and their kids aren't going to see a dime. So we'll have a trust built into their will to stop that from happening. If healthy Jill passes away, it's going to be the money will be held in trust. It can enhance Jack's quality of life, but Medicaid will stay in place. And then when Jack passes away, whatever's in that trust will go to the kids. But finally, how do you deal with that vacation property? An asset protection trust. They have to get it out of their name well in advance of the dementia coming in and the the need for care. You put it into this trust, and you can even put the primary residence into the trust as well. And you know they go on living there using both properties. Nothing changes except the name on the property. But as long as they do that at least five years before applying for Medicaid for Jack, then it's just it's like it doesn't exist. They 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 gave it away, but they did it in a way that um, doesn't have any tax consequences. They've preserved the the capital gains problem. They were not just giving it to the kids. So when the kids get it, ultimately, when both Jack and Jill are gone, there will be no tax problems. The property will be insulated, protected, shielded from these challenges of getting older. It won't come up. So Medicaid will will be there for Jack uh, because he got that vacation property out of his name. He's not allowed to have it on Medicaid, so he put it into a trust. Why would you want the primary residence in a trust? What happens if Jack passes away and it's just Jill And she needs long-term care. You're allowed to have a primary residence, as I've said, on Medicaid. But remember that first category I mentioned, income. Jill loses her income to the nursing home when she needs long-term care. So all her Social Security or pension or anything else is going to the nursing home. So how will Jill pay for the homeowner's insurance or the property taxes or the general upkeep of the house? She won't be able to, even though she's allowed to have this house. And even if the kids say, well, we're going to get the house in the will, we might as well just chip in and keep the house, you know, uh, maintained. Well, that's not going to work because of that estate recovery. Remember I mentioned the government getting paid back. If Jill dies owning that house, the government's going to say, sell it and give us all the money to pay back for the care. And the kids won't get anything from the value of that house. So again, an asset protection trust. So these are the legal tools. These are the what-ifs. This is comprehensive planning. If you want to know more about this, if you want to ask questions about how all this works, go to keystoneelderlaw.com, check out the workshops tab, get registered for one of the upcoming weekly online workshops that I do to go over this comprehensive planning, this exercise of asking what-if and start building that shield to protect yourself and your family from the costs and challenges of getting older. Join me next week for another episode of the Later in Life Planning Show sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. Thanks for listening. You're listening to News Radio WHP 580.